Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming today. We know how hot it's been this weekend, and you could be at the beach or in the pool, at, you know, cooling off. And um, this, today I'm going to be talking about Daniel chapter 3, and it is the story about the fiery furnace. So while I was working on this message on Friday, it was 108 degrees in Irvine. <laughs> It was like crazy. So I kind of felt like we were all in Orange County in the fiery furnace this past weekend, and today I think it's still hot. I'm I'm not sure what it's out there. Anyways, so thank you for being here. Um, As we go through this series of Daniel, you know, Ben presented last week, he was talking about chapter one, chapter two. Each chapter in Daniel has a central theme, and the central, central overarching theme of this entire book of Daniel is that God is sovereign and put it in in pretty simple English, God is in control. And that's true for every chapter because the first six chapters are different stories and and they're fabulous. So I put the first slide. Um, I don't, is anybody a Star Wars fan out here? Loves all that. Oh, yeah, I hear, my family, Star Wars fan. If, If, when they present the new episode, whatever's coming out, the thing you see on the screen kind of scrolling back at you is a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Okay, we're going to say a world far away. And the reason I thought about this is, you know, whether we're looking into the future and we're t- daydreaming and trying to imagine what the future is going to look like a thousand years ago, it can be just as perplexing, I think, for me personally, to look back 2,500 years ago to an ancient civilization and, and try to understand what that civilization was all about. What was it like? I mean, I think it's hard for us in modern society. We, we kind of don't get it. So that's why I put this, this slide up um, because uh, it was a long, long time ago, but it's back in time 2,500 years, and it feels really distant from us in modern society in uh, our contemporary world. Okay, oh good, the remote works. Okay, so chapter three. In chapter three, we are going to learn about um, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he is the most powerful king of the time. If you're a history buff, his empire, he was very successful with his military conquest. So the land that he occupied, the territory, his empire was surrounded by four bodies of water. It was the Caspian Sea, the uh, Persian Gulf, the Red Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea. So from Saudi Arabia kind of all the way up through modern-day Turkey. It was, it was big. So he literally was the king of the world at that time. He had a great empire. He was a, a great emperor. Um, but he was tyrannical at, as those times were and those people were in those empires. So uh, as we start, you should know that obedience to the king in everything was normative. Disobedience was unthinkable. And in fact, you could lose your head. It would be very likely if you defied the king in any way, you would be executed. So let's move on. Um, he decides to, um, before we move on, he decides to do a big power play. He wants to unify his empire. I I think he's trying to keep the insurrection and rebellion down because he's conquered so many different peoples and nations, and and they all have different languages. So he decides 
He's going to build this golden image to himself, an image of gold. And that's pretty common in the ancient world. You know, these, these rulers, um, we may think of them as despots now, tyrants, but they would erect these giant monuments to themselves. And so he decides he's going to do this because he wants to unify his empire and he's going to make everybody bow down to this image of gold. So, I mean, this image of gold is kind of fascinating. It's going to be 90 feet high. Well, if you walk around in your office complexes today, that's about like a seven or eight-story commercial building. That's pretty high. And he's going to build it in gold, out of gold, and he's going to put it out in the plains of um, Babylon, uh, just outside the walled city. Now, this guy was a, a, a man of super- superlatives. He wanted the best of everything. You know, the best fortifications around a city, the best trained people. And you remember Ben talked about the training that Daniel and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his three friends, went through. So there was a big um, spurt on mathematics, astrology. I mean, he he was into the best of everything. So he decides he's going to erect this uh, image of gold, and everybody's going to worship him. He's going to basically elevate himself to a god. He, He... He's king of the world, and he, he wants to be, like, sovereign. He wants to be in control of everything, and he wants people to worship to him, and he thinks that's going to unify his empire. So, I mean, can you imagine this, this image is going to be kind of out in the plains, right outside the walls of the city. It's 90 feet high. It's probably gold-plated. It would have been too expensive even for him to be solid gold. And you're coming in, you're, you're out from uh, the outlying provinces, and you're coming into the capital city, and it's kind of deserty, it's flat, and you see this thing that's 90 feet high, and the sunlight's hitting it, and it's dazzling. It's probably so dazzling, it's blinding. And I think his message was, that's, that's me. I'm dazzling, I'm brilliant, I'm king, and I'm God. I, I'm, I control everything in your known world. So that, that's where we start in this story. Let's see if I get the clicker right. All right. So further to this, to unify his kingdom, he decides he's going to send out messengers to every province, every nation, every people that he's conquered, to all the high officials. So we're not talking about the ordinary citizens. If we were, in, in terms of our country, This would be like his cabinet officials are there. All his generals are there. The Supreme Court justices are there. The Treasury Department's there. Law enforcement's there. The governors of all the United States of America, they're there. So anybody who's in the who's who, they're going to be there. And it takes time to send messages out. They're all going to come in. And he's designing this to be spectacular. It's going to be epic. Um, and the only thing I can think of in our world is, all right, who's, who likes the opening ceremonies of the Olympics? All right, I am a huge fan of that. And in the opening ceremony of the Olympics, the best of the best, all these young athletes, men and women, the best athletes in our world come in competing for their country. And when they walk in, all that fanfare, they're in, you know, whatever whatever clothes they're wearing reflect the colors of their flag. They're carrying their flags. 
People are cheering. I mean, it's so exciting to see these young men and women. They're incredible, and they're walking in. And then the host nation, after they come in, the host nation does this huge pageantry. I mean, they have music and dancing, and sometimes it's a narrative. They have lightings and crazy things going on with the technology, fireworks going off. And then at the very end, um, they light the Olympic flame. And at the, at the South Korea, the summer Olympic, no, winter Olympics, um, that, that flame, the Olympic torch, was up pretty high, if you remember from watching on TV. So Nebuchadnezzar, in my mind, you know, thinking, this is how I'm thinking, this is what he wants. He wants like the opening series of the Olympics. And he wants people to be so awestruck at how dazzling and brilliant he is. And then he's got this 90-foot image of gold right next to him, you know, that they can see and make the connection. Oh, wow, this is a great king. So, but, and he also assembles an orchestra, just like we hear the music at the opening ceremonies. It's fabulous. They always feature singers, the best singers of their country. Um, I loved it when they did it in Britain, and they did a lot of pop music. That was so fun. Um, anyways, so he assembles an orchestra, and that orchestra has every instrument known in the ancient world. And, and his, what he's saying, and the edict that goes out is, when the orchestra starts to play, all of you people, all of you nations, with all your languages, you're going to fall down and worship me. Now, this is not like a curtsy that we would do if we were ever fortunate enough to meet Queen Elizabeth. This is a full fall on your face on the ground. So imagine the scene. We're outside of Babylon. There's this gold-plated 90-foot tire uh, tower, uh, um, this image of him, I guess. Uh, we're not sure if it's of him or his God. Um, it's dazzling. This orchestra is playing. Everybody who's anybody in that empire and who has enjoyed success because of him, they're there in their finest clothes, and the orchestra starts to play, and everybody bows down. So, but apparently, there's three that don't, and it's Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And to, to, so I don't stumble over my words while I'm talking to you after this long, hot weekend. I'm just going to call them the three friends, if you will allow me to do that. So they don't, we don't know where they are in the crowd. We don't know if they're back in the fringes. We're not sure. But all we know is there's a lot of people standing there who have all fallen down, and they have not. And so three, um, three men go up to the king and, they're, and the Bible tells us they're astrologers. So they could have been in this training class with Daniel and his three friends. And remember, Daniel and his three friends excelled over everybody else and over the native Babylonians. And they were placed in really high positions of power. So the, the Hebrew word that's used to describe this accusation is really, it's malicious. It's to eat tiny bits of flesh that have been torn off somebody. I mean, it's like, oh, oh, yuck. That's really, oh. So um, it's a malicious accusation. They're jealous. They're resentful. I don't, I think they're angry that these four uh, men have, have risen to the top and they didn't get those positions. So they go up to the king and they tell the king about this treachery that these three friends did not bow down. So King um, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar 
I, he seems to be a fairly just king in the sense that he doesn't believe the hearsay of um, what the, the accusers are saying, and he wants proof. So he has the three friends come forward, and he says to them, is it true? You know, is it true that, you know, when the orchestra played and you were told to fall down and worship me, um, that you, you didn't do it? And, and this, this is really kind of a, a stunning thing because um, we don't know how old they are. We don't know if one or two years have passed. They were young teenagers when Ben talked about them last week. So we don't know if it's five years. You know, maybe they're 20. Um, we don't know if it's 15 years. We're not sure of their age. But these three friends basically nod and tell the king it's true. They have refused to bow down. And if you're reading, if you're following along in your Bibles or on your phone, in, uh, I think it's verse 17, you know, the, the, the king ha- has said, oh, you know, what, why are you not doing this? And, and they say, um, O king, and they're respectful to him, and, and they say, we serve a God who is able to save us from the furnace, because if you don't, if you didn't bow down, you're going to get thrown in the furnace. I think this is just me, you know, as an aside. I think King Nebuchadnezzar, he's orchestrated this whole thing in the pageantry, and I think the furnace is close to where the golden image is, because that's what they would have used to smelt the gold, and that's what they would have used to um, fire the bricks that were probably the core of the statue and also the pedestal to support it. So it's probably right there. And in terms of pomp and circumstance, I guess he's, he's already got that thing fired up and it's smoking. So everybody that's out there, all the officials, they know he's serious. They know that he means business and that if they don't bow down, they're going to get thrown in the fire. So the three young men say to him, we serve a God who is able to save us from the fire, from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your gods. We will not. Um, And I love that. You know, let's just pause that for a minute. Uh, Hit the pause button. That even if, I mean, wow. What a statement of faith. um, They're up against the most powerful man in, in that part of the world. The most powerful king. And he's determined to carry out what he said he was going to do. And they're going to get thrown into this furnace, which was probably, by the way, uh, uh, heated up to about over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And archaeologists have found these kinds of furnaces in the area of Babylon, which is just south of modern-day Baghdad. And so they look like um, an old-fashioned milk glass, uh, a milk bottle that's made of glass. They have a wide opening at the top and then... And then for the furnace, not in the milk bottle, of course, they, they have a small opening on the side uh, so that something could be thrown in the top. And they have actually have excavated uh, similar type furnaces. So you, you have to wonder how in the world can these young men sta- have so, stand up against such a powerful king? And, and when he tells them this, His face literally gets so angry that his countenance changes, his attitude changes. Uh, He he may have had some affection for these young men. Maybe that's why he asked them to be brought forward, and he wanted to hear it from their own mouths that they were not going to fall down. 
I don't know. Um, but now he's angry, and his face is angry, and I don't know what's smoking more, the furnace or him. Do you know I mean? He's so furious. He's furious that they have disobeyed him, and they get thrown into the, and they get thrown into the fire. But before they get thrown into the fire, um, one of the things he says, which is really interesting, um, and, and he, he knows from what Ben told us, you know, in chapter 1 and 2, he knows a little bit about the God of these young men because Daniel has told him his dream and interpreted it for him. I mean, so Daniel knew a dream that hadn't been disclosed, and then he still did the interpretation. So he knows a little bit about the God, um, but apparently not enough. And so what he does is he, he almost mocks the, the one God who's in control, our sovereign God, and he says, what God will be able to save you from my hand? Because he thinks he's sovereign. He thinks he's in control of everything. So, um, and it's kind of mocking God. So they're thrown into the, they're thrown into the fire, and we'll move along. It, it, and um, some ama- something amazing happens. The three friends are delivered, um, they're delivered, um, from the fire, but they're still in the fire. So they're delivered, but they're in the fire. And, and the king, I think he's sitting down, and he's probably so angry because he's orchestrated this huge pageantry like the opening ceremony of the Olympics, and, and they've ruined it for him. These three young men that he took a chance on and he trained, he must be thinking they're so ungrateful and they're so rebellious and they've ruined, they've spoiled this great event of his. He's probably furious as he's sitting there. But then he looks into the furnace and, and he's so startled, the Bible tells us he leaps up. And I imagine the king, with that kind of power, he probably didn't move fast. He probably moved majestically and slowly. He leaps to his feet and he's looking in and he sees, he sees them walking around inside the furnace. And, and I'm thinking, as I'm reading this and thinking about it, he must think he's had a little too much to drink. You know, he, he was having fun. You know, it was a great ceremony, and everybody's there, and, man, it's turning out really well. Um, or uh, maybe he thinks it's too hot. I'm too hot to that furnace. I've really got it hot, and it's the, it's the heat. And so... He, I, I don't think he believes what he's seeing, so he jumps up to go look, and he sees the three friends, but he sees something else. There's somebody else in there with them. So, and now he's really confused because he, he doesn't know if he's going crazy and what reality is. So he turns to his advisors, and of course, there's all kinds of them. All His top advisors are right next to him, and he goes, did we not throw three young men into this fire and we had them bound? And they're like, oh, yes, king. Oh, yes, king. And he goes, well, they're walking around and I see four in there. You know, he's so astounded. Um, So I think as he's dealing with the reality of this and it's so bizarre that he's questioning his sanity, he must at some point be persuaded this is real. And he's really, this is reality. So he shouts at them, come out, come here. And they do. They come out, and they do, um, they do a, a, an official inspection. So um, I think we just went through this. But he, at this point, you know, as he sees the four in there and he sees they're still alive, I think it's beginning to dawn on him, hey, he is not a god. He is not, he is not the sovereign god of the universe. 
So they do an inspection, maybe, I'm not sure why, maybe because they're not sure what they're seeing and they can't believe it. And, and so the, uh, the three friends come out and they're looking at their hair, it's not singed, they're looking at their skin, it's not burned, they're, they're, the fabric, which should have been flammable like that, it should have gone up so quickly, it's not, it, it's not, it's not burned. Um, they don't smell like smoke. I don't know if you ever go down to Crona del Mar to the uh, bonfires down there. If you're anywhere near those bonfire pits and the smoke gets in your hair and on your clothes, it's strong. You've got to wash it. You've got to wash your hair. got to wash your clothes. They didn't, they didn't smell like any of that. So now um, King Nebuchadnezzar has to make a decision. Yeah, he has to decide, um, gosh, maybe he's not the most powerful entity in the world. And so it, it's kind of like, what, what's he going to do? Is he going to be humble and accept that there is a power above him? There is something, something, someone more powerful than him? Um, or is he going to somehow deny it and try to, try to create a, a, you know, a, an explanation for what just happened? So to his credit, I, I think he was scared. I think it scared him. He declares, because... See, God has made a declaration, a public declaration to that king because the king said, what God can save you from my hand? And the God we serve made a public declaration. I can, I can, and I will. And so now the king has to make some kind of a decree uh, in response. And so he says, if you don't believe, if you don't, um, if you say anything bad about the God of these three friends, uh, I will cut you in pieces. I will dismember you, and I will tra- your house will be rubble. It'll, it will be like you never existed, and your house never existed. And, and so that's kind of the, that, that's the, the story quickly, and, and I want to kind of un- unpack that and, and move on to um, what that means, because that was 2,500 years ago. So again, you know, uh, throughout the entire book of Daniel, each chapter, the main theme, the primary assertion is that God is sovereign, meaning God is in control. The king and culture are not sovereign. You know, we are not sovereign. There can only be one sovereign, and, and that is God. So um, that is the, the central theme of this chapter, chapter 3. And then secondly, that um, when we are in firestorms in life, He's with us because remember, when they were walking in the fire, there was a fourth, there was somebody there. The presence of God was there with them in the fire. And they were not delivered from the fire in the sense the fire didn't get extinguished. The fire was still going. They were delivered in the fire. And, and, and for us, metaphorically, here, you know, uh, where we are now 2,500 years later, you know, I have to say life is hard. You know, it's just hard. Uh, maybe you're in a season of life that's easy. You know, that's great, and you should be so grateful. But for a lot of us here, life is hard. And there are firestorms around us constantly. Now, w- while we may not experience this kind of a testing, we do have trials. And whether that is, you know, a sickness or an illness you're dealing with or a job situation, you know, relationship stuff, financial hardships, you know, I don't know. We have firestorms. We're in the fire. Um, uh, Four or five years ago, uh, when I was in one of my uh, Fuller Seminary classes, there was uh, uh, one of our classmates was from Nigeria, and he he was in his um, late um, 30s, 
and he has a family, and, and, what, and the professor asked him to talk, and what he told us about Nigeria and the reality of his country was that um, the insurgents and the terrorists and the rebels, uh, that kind of military movement was very fluid. So you never knew when you were on a highway who was controlling what, you know, whether it was the Islamic rebels or whether it was uh, a militia that might be more prone to Christianity, and so you would, there would be military checkpoints, and when you would come up with your car to the military checkpoint, if it was one that was held by the rebels, they would ask you to cite the Koran to prove that your God was Allah, and if you didn't, you would be shot, and if you came across a military checkpoint that was one where the militia or the soldiers or whoever they were um, were Christian, they would ask you to uh, recite something from the Bible. And we were kind of stunned. Like, this was his everyday reality. And, I, I, and we were kind of like, well, what, what do you do? And he was so cheerful about it. He was like, well, you know, I'm not going to deny my God. We were like, we were so stunned. Anyways, um, that's probably not going to happen to us in the United States of America, but nevertheless, we're going to have firestorms. And, you know, I have a a brother-in-law who's a fire captain, and one of the stories he told me right around 9-11 was um, the first responders to the the tragedy at at 9-11 at the World Trade Center, those were the firefighters he worked with and he ministered to. And he used to always say to them, um, do you know how to make God laugh? And, you know, and they would kind of go, no, chaplain. And he'd go, just tell God what you're doing tomorrow. And, you know, and it, 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 it really, it speaks to how we think we're sovereign and in control. But again, in King Nebuchadnezzar, he thought he was sovereign and in control. But there can only be one sovereign one God who's in control. And that's what we believe in. And the three friends had that strong faith. They were willing to walk into their faith, live into their faith. And I, I don't know that I could have done that if I saw that furnace burning. I'm not sure I would have done that, to tell you the truth. I mean, I just can't even imagine. So I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, the, the Bible quickly as we're wrapping up. So from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible that we read and believe in, it tells us the story of our God, a God who is for us and with us and who's, who's in it, our companion in these trials, in these fires. Now, this verse in Isaiah that's up on the screen, it's a beautiful verse. I love this verse if, if you're looking at it or reading it. Um, It's one of my favorites. It was written about 150 years, approximately, before Daniel and his three friends were in Babylon. And a lot of Old Testament scholars think it was actually a song that they sang. Because worship music informs our theology. It tells us who our God is. And this is what they were listening to, about a God who could deliver them. And this was written 150 years before Daniel was written, a God who can deliver us in these kinds of fires. We also see this in the New Testament, too, um, because our God, throughout history, human history, has intervened in history to be with his people and help his people. And 
Jesus, we, we see the disclosure of who God is in the person and life of his son, Jesus Christ, who was here on earth and walked with us, was with us, and still is with us because what Jesus says is, I'm always with you to the very end of the age. And then Paul says in Hebrews that God says, I will never leave you, never forsake you. And 2 Timothy, when you read 2 Timothy, Paul tells us again that God is trustworthy. He, we're we're able to trust him with whatever burdens we have, whatever fires we're in, whatever we're walking through. He is trustworthy. He will be there with us. So, and, and here's the clincher. We think we're in control. We think we're sovereign. What if we exchange our sense of control for trust in a God who's proven trustworthy? What if we do that? What if we let go of control and realize we're, it's an illusion? We're not really in control. You know, like the chaplain from 9-11, who, by the way, lost his life in that tragedy because he was with his firefighters. We don't know what's going to, what the next day is going to, what tomorrow's going to bring for us. So what if we let go of control, we exchange it for a trusted, a God who's trustworthy, a God who says, I'm with you. I'm always with you. I'm for you. So the, the takeaway um, as, we kind of, as we wrap up today is, if I could just leave you with a couple points that God is sovereign. He's in control. We like to think we are. I mean, we, we micromanage our lives and, you know, gosh, we can, we can micromanage our climate, right? It doesn't matter if it's 108 degrees out there. We just turn on the, air, the AC, right? We, we can, there's so many things we can micromanage. But, um, but yet we are not sovereign. There can only be one sovereign. One sovereign above all kings, all culture, and that is the God that we serve. And he says he's for us and he's with us. And, I, I, and we also have the gift of the Holy Spirit inside of us. And, and then this little tagline on the bottom, um, I'm kind of wrapping it up. If, if I had to give a tagline and try to call it down, if God has brought you to something, if he's brought you to it, whatever it is, whether it's a sickness or uh, just challenges or family dynamics or relationship stuff, whatever it is, if he's brought you to it, he's going to bring you through it. He's faithful. He's trustworthy. That is the God we serve. That is the God that the three friends served, and that is how they were able to do what they do. Oh, and by the way, at the end of Daniel 3, after all of that, defying the king with that epic pageantry and everything he planned, you know, making his plans go south, souring the minute for him. He was so angry. At the end of all that, standing up for their God, not being intimidated by this tyrant, um, at the very end, they get promoted. Now, how about that? How's that for good news? I think that's a great story. I'm like, okay, have a clap for God and the people that stand firm. So, so this, for our culture, you know, we, we may not have these kinds of decisions like the three friends did or the, my Nigerian classmate and the firestorms that we face, but, you know, make no mistake, we still have decision points in our lives every day where we have to decide who we serve, you know, and how we're going to act and how we're going to be. And so um, I would pray that you would remember that God is with you and for you in whatever you are going through. So um, as we uh, go on with the service, I think this is communion time, right? John, am I doing this right? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Normally if I talk, I don't have to do this part. 
So uh, one thing that Bucky and Ben have asked us to do is to, right before communion, if we can just have a minute of quiet, where we, and I know this sounds kind of weird, but if we put our palms out and just lay them on our, on our, um, on our thighs, on our knees, and we close our eyes um, just for a minute while I, I pray quickly over you, and then you, will, you can take communion. So, Lord, I just pray that everybody here, Lord, all of these precious people, all these friends that have gathered here, this community, this people of God who believes in you, that this week they would feel your presence in whatever firestorm they're in, Lord, that they would know that you would be there with them and in it and for them, that you are the advocate, Lord. Lord, you love them so much. So, Lord, I pray that they would know that you are trustworthy and we can give it over to you and we, we, can, we don't have to have our hands white-knuckled. We can let go and let you be God. So, Lord, thank you for this time together and uh, we just praise your name. And as you're called, um, this, we're going to have two worship songs. Uh, you can get up and go to communion. There's four stations there, so we invite you to the fellowship um, of the table to remember what our Lord and Savior, what Jesus did for us uh, when he died and when his, uh, when his blood was shed for us. So the communion table, it's a remembrance time. It's like, okay, this is, I get it, this, what, this God who's for us, this is what he's done for me, for us. And we are proud to serve this God. So you, whenever you feel like it, please um, take communion. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.